10. Please be seated. If you brought a Bible with you today, please open it up to the book of Acts, chapter 9. If you did not bring a Bible with you today, please grab one from under a seat in front of you and then open it up to the book of Acts, chapter 9. You don't, if you don't own a Bible, please take that one home with you after the service. Acts chapter 9, we began in chapter 9 last week looking at Saul. At the beginning of the chapter, we saw that he had continued now his, his aggressive persecution of the church, even far beyond any of his contemporaries. His goal, as we discussed last week, was to wipe out the church in its very beginning. But God had different plans. God had different plans not only for his church, but specifically for Saul. And we saw last week on his encounter with the Lord on his way to Damascus, how it radically and totally and completely changed his life. And he went from the hunter to the hunted. <laughs> Filled with the Holy Spirit, he couldn't help himself but to proclaim the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and how, how Jesus fulfilled all of these things in the Old Testament scriptures that he as a Pharisee had been trying to explain before, but now his eyes have been opened and he understands the truth. And as he's sharing that, we discuss that now he's the hunted one. Several times during the next few days, weeks, months, his life was threatened. He went from where he was in Damascus, and he, he went into Arabia, then back to Damascus. And as, as he's running for his life, it takes him to Jerusalem. And then his life is threatened there in Jerusalem. And it tells us then that the disciples sent him on to Caesarea, and then eventually to his hometown of Tarsus, where he will spend the better part of eight years. And we don't, we don't have a lot recorded of what takes place, anything actually recorded of what takes place during those eight years. We're going to pick up the story of Saul, Paul, in a couple of chapters. But Luke transitions us right in the middle of chapter 9 to the ministry, first of all, of the church itself, but then specifically of Peter for the next couple of chapters. So we find ourselves today, Luke chapter 9, verse, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Now, at first reading, it says, you know, the verse before it says, but when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him on to Tarsus, speaking of Saul. And then verse 31 starts out, so the church enjoyed peace. That's not because Saul was in Tarsus. <laughs> That's not because the church sent Saul away that they enjoyed peace. As a matter of fact, it's interesting when we look at this verse itself, it's, it's one of those that we can almost look at it as a transition verse and miss all that's in it. There's so much in this verse just in itself. Notice the first part that it tells us that the church in all of Galilee, Judea, Samaria, the church has spread. God used the persecution that came against the church, we talked about before, and the stoning of Stephen to spread the church. And what the enemy meant for evil and to destroy the church, God used it to spread the church throughout all of these regions. And the church is thriving and it's growing. And it says first that it enjoyed peace. Now, again, that word enjoyed is, is not a real good translation of the Greek word there. The Greek word literally means to grab a hold of, to take possession of peace. And it's interesting when we look at that, because it does not mean that they enjoyed peace. Like I said, okay, nobody's bothering us anymore. Everything's peaceful and tranquil. 
No, they will continue to face severe persecution. We're going to see that as we continue to study through the book of Acts. That's not what it means. It means that they grabbed a hold of something that only Christians can grab a hold of. First of all, peace with God. They grabbed a hold of it, and, and in that grabbing a hold of it, yes, they enjoyed it, but peace with God. There is something that takes place in the life of a believer that no one can experience outside of that, and that is peace with God. The world will say, and many say, I don't have any problem with God. I don't need to follow Jesus or anything like that. I don't have any problem with God. I'm not at war with God. The problem is they, they're, they're totally missing it. It's not that they don't have a problem with God. God has a problem with them, and it's sin. The world, the, the Bible tells us, the word clearly dis, tells us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the world, and, and in our humanity, we have a tendency to downplay like that. That's not that big a deal. But it is a huge deal to a holy and righteous and perfect God. The Bible tells us that before we come to faith, we are enemies of God. And there's nothing that we can do to rectify that except to come under the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. To be washed clean of our sin. And in that we have peace with God. Paul speaks of it in Romans chapter 5 verse 1. He says, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. And then we have the peace of God that is not available again anywhere else to anybody else other than believers. The peace of God. The peace of God that passes all understanding, as the Bible tells us. And aren't you glad, Jesus said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Aren't you glad it's not the same kind of peace that the world enjoys? <laughs> like all of the peace treaties out there. Oh, I give you my word. <laughs> you know, we'll sign this. It will be None of those last. But the peace of God. Isaiah says that he will keep in perfect peace those whose mind has stayed on him. You see, they weren't enjoying a time of no tribulation or no trial or no difficulties. No, they had peace in the midst of their trials and difficulties. James tells us, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God uses all of these things that come into our lives, trials, tribulations, difficulties, persecutions even, to form in us and, and develop in us a completeness. The Bible says that when we become believers, we are given everything that we need for a life of godliness but it takes the working through of that process to, so that we can embrace what is truly ours. All that we have. They laid a hold of peace. Notice also then as he, he, he goes on and kind of describes then the process that comes from that or comes out of that. says being built up. That's the word that's translated many times edified. Being built up. It's, a, it's just like outside. We're all in the process of construction. We're all under construction. And as believers, we understand that there's only one foundation to build on, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. All other ground is sinking sand. But on the foundation of salvation in Christ alone, 
we are to build ourselves up. Building, Paul tells us, watch how you are building. Watch what you're building with and how you're building. But there's also a process being built up that we all play together in that. Helping one another. Coming alongside one another. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are also doing. That same word there, build one another up, is the same term here, being built up. We're all in the process of being built up, and we all need to be involved in building one another up. I like this too, the next part he talks about, going on. Another huge part of our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. The walk that we have, the Bible uses illustrations of you know, a building being built up, a walk or a journey or a race that we are on. And if we are going to do this well and do it right, we need to go on. So many people get stuck, stuck in their walk because they refuse to move forward or they continue to look back. Paul said, I'm not going to look back anymore. Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, the upward call of Christ. So many get bogged down in that I have to deal with this issue in my past or everything. Guys, we all have a past. Every one of us has a past, but we've been delivered. We've been set free. All of us have been hurt by somebody. Many of us, if not most of us, have been even hurt by other Christians. But we can get stuck constantly focusing on that and looking back to those things. I've counseled many people that say, well, I have, we have to get together and we have to work through this and we have to sit down and work through this. No, you don't. No, you don't. Grace, forgiveness, move forward. <laughs> it's amazing to me when we read about Jacob and Esau. If there's anybody who had a bone to pick with his brother, it was Esau, Right? As wrong as Esau was, he felt, you know, there's one guy who felt that he was owed something. It could have been Esau. But when they got together, Esau didn't say, you know what, we got to talk about this. Esau, godless Esau, embraced his brother. Forgetting what lies behind. It doesn't mean that it's erased from your memory. But what it does mean is that it no longer hinders the steps that you're taking forward. And the church recognized that and got behind that from the very beginning. And notice, it tells us how, in the fear of the Lord, awe, reverence for God, and all that he has done for us. Guys, if you have a trouble forgiving someone else, you need to spend some time today remembering all that God has forgiven you of. Focused on that amazing gift that you've given in awe and reverence for him. And also, it says, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The comfort of the Holy Spirit, our comforter, the one that Jesus promised. As he said in John 14, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides in you and will be in you. As believers, guys, we have the Holy Spirit in us, the comforter, the helper the one as, as we allow him to do the work that he desires to do in us, the fruit of the Spirit, as that then comes out in us as we move forward, as we are being built up, as we are building one another, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit, that pours out and people see it. 
And it says that, in a nutshell, and I love that, verse 31, that, as God did his work, as the church was doing their work, the church increased. No gimmicks, no special promotions, just letting God do his work in and through us. Moving forward. What we see now in verse 32, as I mentioned, we transition into the ministry of, of Peter. It says, now as Peter was traveling through all of those regions, Judea, Galilee, Samaria, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden for eight years, for he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. <laughs> Immediately he got up. And all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Peter's traveling through this region, no doubt preaching the gospel to those who, who have not received the Lord Jesus, teaching the scriptures to those, the, the, the church as it's growing. Lydda, he stops at here and makes a note of. That's modern day lawn, or laud, I'm sorry. It's where if you've been to Israel before or you're going with us next spring, You've been to Lod, you've been to Lydda, that's where the airport is, Ben-Gurion Airport that we fly in and land in, that's, that's where that is, outside of Tel Aviv. He comes to this man who's been bedridden, has been paralyzed for eight years, Aeneas, and notice he says, Jesus Christ heals you. How much credit does Peter take? None. He does not say, I, Peter, in the name of Jesus, heal you. He takes zero credit. Jesus Christ heals you. Guys, we need to understand, and we're going to see it again here in a moment with something else. Peter gets it. The gift of healing is something that only God has. And he gives it to individuals and says, now use this there. Peter gets that. And because he gets it, notice as, as we read here, people turn to the Lord. They don't turn to Peter. They don't say, how can I join St. Peter Ministries International? They say, how do I follow this Lord Jesus? The body of Christ keeps growing as Peter is faithful and God is faithful. Well, verse 36. Now, in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. I think I'm going with Tabitha. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hands and raised her up. And calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. It became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. Here we see an event that takes place in a town named Joppa. That's a few miles away from Lydda 
in modern-day Jaffa. Now, if you've gone to Israel or are planning to go to Israel, you're going to go there, too. That's where we spend our first night when, we are, when we're right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Dan Panorama Hotel is beautiful, beautiful area. Jaffa is a beautiful place. And in this setting, it's a port city. It's a very busy city. A lot is going on. We're introduced to a woman. Her name is Tabitha. It tells us that she's abounding in grace, abounding in charity. Abounding means that she is full. It's that idea of full to overflowing. So full of the Holy Spirit and so grateful for all that God has done to her, she can't help but just pour it out to others. Notice, too, it says she's abounding in these things, which she did. So many times we can get bogged down in the process and the planning and fail to do. She did. She did it in such a way that she touched many lives. But she, she gets sick and she dies. And we see how many lives she touches by the people that come and are mourning for her. So many widows, it points out. Those that, those that probably couldn't afford to buy both food and clothing. And she said, well, what I can do, God's given me a gift to make clothing. I'll make you the clothing and give that to you so you can, you can go and spend your money on other things. A compassionate heart. Much loved, obviously. Peter is summoned from a few miles away and he comes. And notice what Peter does. I think this is, this is important. He sends everybody out of the room. That's not good for ratings. How, people got to see what you're going to do. I mean, in, in the flesh, somebody's going to say, hey, I watched Jesus do this. Now watch me do it. Hey, everybody gather around. But Peter, again, in his humility, sends everybody out of the room. And then it says that he prayed. And as I, as I try to do every time that I, I'm about to just put in my thoughts on things, this is not, what I'm about to say is not recorded for us. But I wonder what Peter prayed. I wonder how he prayed. I can only guess as I'm contemplating this myself, because Peter, as we've talked about, is just like we looked at Elijah a couple of weeks ago and, and some of these others. The Bible tells us that they're men and, and women, just like we are, same nature as we have. So when I think about that, I can put myself in a place like Peter is. Because Peter, in this situation like now, is way over his head. He's going into uncharted waters. He's watched Jesus do this, but now it's a totally different ballgame. And I'm, I put myself in that position because I'm going to let you in on a little something. I'm way over my head <laughs> in what I'm doing. And my prayer often is like, Lord, you're the one. It was your idea to call a hot tub salesman to put in this job. <laughs> you better show up in a big way because I have no idea what to do right now. I don't know how to handle this. And I wonder if that wasn't part of Peter's prayer. It tells us that he knelt. But I wonder if that's after he paced the room a couple of times. Lord, you're the one who called this poor fisherman. I don't have any training in this. What am I going to do now? I don't know. Could be. I say that, though, because I know there's probably many of you sitting out there. And as the Lord calls and lays something on your heart, you're saying, I can't do that. I'm just a... Fill in the blank. 
But God takes those fill in the blanks. And if we're willing to say, Lord, I can't do this. That's way beyond my pay grade. <laughs> but you can through me if you choose to. I want to challenge each of you that are wrestling with something right now that the Lord's laid on your heart and you don't feel qualified to do. I'm going to confirm you're not qualified. <laughs> but he is. And he wants to. He uses a fisherman like Peter. And he kneels down in the Lord, no doubt, in <laughs> guiding this entire process, he says, Tabitha, arise. Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes. He presents her alive. What an amazing miracle. Now, we read of something like this, and no doubt there's a few of you, maybe several of you, who have lost a loved one, somebody close to you, somebody that you feel the Lord took before he should have. And you could ask the question, why would he do that for Tabitha and not for mine? I prayed for that person. I prayed earnestly for that person. Why, why is it that, that God chooses some and not others? We're going to see in a couple of chapters that Paul... He, get, he upsets so, some people in town so much that they stone him. They drag him out of town dead. Leave his body for dead. What does Paul do? He gets up, goes back into town. <laughs> but why did God touch Paul and raise him? We read about Stephen a couple chapters ago. Why didn't he do that with Stephen? I don't know. I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. But when we're faced with things like this, we need to focus on the things that we do know about God. That he is sovereign, that he's in control, that he is a God of only good. He can do no evil. It's not that he chooses not to do evil. He can't. He's holy. He's righteous. He's perfect. And he loves us. He loves us so much that, as we said earlier, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he died for us. He didn't have to do that, but he did it for us. His ways are so much higher than our ways. His thoughts so much higher than our thoughts. And we need to submit to that, knowing that he has a perfect plan. He knows the end. And he's working all of the pieces together to get to that end. Nothing, nothing is going to change that. We look at a story like this and we see a room full of people that are just ecstatic. Do you think there was anybody in that room that wasn't totally thrilled? I can think of one, Tabitha. She, she, she had to come back. <laughs> but God is a sovereign God, a loving God. You can never lose sight of that tells us as we close out this section, Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. Interesting, he would stay with a tanner. A tanner was someone who dealt with dead animals, skinning them, using their skins and other body parts for things. That was an unclean profession. And Peter 
chooses to stay with him while he is there. I wonder if that was directed by the Lord because we're going to see how the Lord is going to move Peter in a process as we get into chapter 10. I wonder, because a tanner was the one that made wineskins, I wonder if Peter saw some wineskins hanging on the wall thinking, I remember when Jesus said, can't put new wine into old wineskins setting up our next chapter, chapter 10. Now, there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. One day, while he was praying, as it tells us in verse 30, he was praying at this time, at the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, I can imagine, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his sermon, or servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Here are story shifts up the coast about 35 miles to Caesarea. And if you've ever been to a, with us on a tour to Israel, or if you're going with us next spring... It's one of our first stops that we make, a beautiful pl place, right on the Mediterranean Sea. Caesarea Maritima is what it is called. It's a place where the amphitheater, where Paul gave his defense, is there. The Herod's castle that actually goes out into the Mediterranean Sea, you can still see the foundation that was laid th a couple thousand years ago out into the, the bay. It's a beautiful setting. We're introduced to a man here named Cornelius. Now, he's a centurion, which is important that we understand that he's a Roman citizen and a Gentile. And that's where the Lord is going to work on Peter here in a moment. But we see some things about Cornelius. Not your typical Roman centurion Gentile. It says that he was God-fearing. He feared the true and living God. He feared Yahweh. He watched the Jewish people around him, and there was something about the God that they worshipped that had attracted him. He feared God. He helped the Jewish people. He was generous to them, as we will see, and we will, it reports to us. Generous, giving of his own resources to them. Now, that's not easy. That is not easy for a Roman leader, a Roman centurion, to publicly demonstrate sympathies for the Jewish people and for their faith. That was uncommon. And notice, too, not even going a step beyond that, he observed their regular prayer times. And during one of those prayer times, it says that he had a vision of an angel of God that appeared to him, walked into the room, and it tells him that he told him, God hears your prayers, Cornelius. God has seen 
what it is that you're doing. He's seen your generosity. And on top of that, based on how it's written out here, God sees your heart behind what you're doing. Now, as, as I said conjecture earlier with, I wonder what Peter's prayer included. I wonder what the centurion, I wonder what Cornelius's prayer was like. In it that we can understand a little bit about Cornelius. As a centurion, you can't get much higher in the, on the military ladder than a centurion. There's a couple of spots higher than you, but not many. He's worked his way up. He's probably attained that level that he set out from when he was, when he was a little boy. He's, he's wealthy. Centurions made a lot more money than your typical soldier. He had a lot of power, a lot of recognition. But there was still something empty. All the world had had to offer, everything that he chased after, he was still lacking. There was still something missing. And we can't lose sight of that, guys. The world all around us tries to put on a face that everything is great. We can watch the, the conventions and watch all of this other kind of stuff. And everybody says, oh, yeah, everything, we're just right around the corner from this. Or everything's going to be great as long as it's, and, and everything. But deep down inside, the world that doesn't know Jesus is miserable. They understand they understand. There's something missing. It was, my wife just had surgery on Thursday, and she's doing great. Recovery's go, doing fine. But it, the, the anesthesiologist said something interesting before the surgery as they're in the room to, with us. They said, we're going to try to get her home even tonight. And, and we were kind of asking a little bit about that. And, and she said, she goes, well, the truth of the matter is, we in the profession, we all know this. The longer you stay here, the sicker you get. I'm thinking, that's not a real good marketing slogan. <laughs> but bottom line is, the world, people in the world, not, not the world as it's, a, but individuals un, are understanding that. Man, the longer I'm going down here, the sicker I get. And, and I wonder if that wasn't part of his prayer. God, God, out there, there's something more. He, the all Romans, they had a God for everything. And he, I wonder how many times throughout his life he prayed to a little G God. You know, all of these different ones. I'll try this one, I'll try this one, I'll try this one. And nothing's working. I wonder if his prayer wasn't along the lines of, God, if you're there, if you are really the answer, would you show me? Would you reveal yourself to me? The Lord speaks to him through an angel, tells him, he gives him specific instructions, send some men down to Joppa and get Peter. Bring him back, and he'll share with you what it is that you're searching for. Why didn't the angel just tell him about Jesus? I don't know. <laughs> Other than God chooses to use you and me. Now, if I was on... God's board of directors, I'd advise him, you know, the angel would probably be way more effective. <laughs> They're far more obedient. <laughs> and wow, right? But he chooses to use us. He chooses to use us in that process, those that have been redeemed. And wow. Immediately we see 
he responds. He says, you know, immediately. He sends them down to get it. And in that, we see the heart of Cornelius, a humble man, the one who understands authority. He called the, the angel Lord. He understands, okay, whatever it is that you say, I'm going to do. I understand authority, just like the centurion that came to Jesus. I get this authority thing, so whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do. And humility. Go down, send some men down to Joppa and go get this fisherman and he'll come and tell you, what can a fisherman teach me? I'm a centurion. What a heart, though. Okay, yes. <laughs> little lesson in that, guys. Don't, don't ever think that somebody can't teach you something. God, God will use, use our kids, use people that, that we know more than to bring truth to us. Never think that that you've reached a point where you can't be taught by somebody else. Well, I like this again, too, as I'm thinking through. wonder what was going through the minds of these men that are sent now down to Joppa. It doesn't tell us, but I can think of some, one question that I'd be thinking while I'm walking. What if he doesn't want to come? What, what are we going to do if he says no? I mean, the, the soldier might say, well, I'll take care of that. <laughs> but... What is he going to do if he says no? Well, again, God's sovereignty, God's providence, God's hand, because what they didn't know is God's working on the other side already. And it tells us in verse 9, on the next day as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Peter, observing this time of prayer the next day, he grows hungry, so he probably calls down, so they start some lunch preparation, and he continues to pray. And it tells us now that he sees this vision of a, of a large sheet that comes down from heaven, and as it is opened up before him, we can tell by his reaction, it's full of unclean animals. Animals that were considered unclean based on the Levitical practices and dietary laws that were set up in the Old Testament. And that's, that's one thing. But then the Lord specifically says to Peter, rise, Pete, kill and eat. Can you imagine what's going on through his head? Now that, by the way, is a command from God. It wasn't just a waiter giving him lunch suggestions off of the menu. This was a direct command from God. Get up, Peter, slaughter those animals and eat them. And his response, by no means, absolutely not. And it would have been bad enough if he'd have just stopped there. But then he says, Lord, afterwards. Guys, those two statements can never go together. By no means, or absolutely not, Lord. Because that means we don't understand what Lord means. 
Lordship means fully surrendered to, submitted to. He is the one who calls the shots. He's the one who says what to do and what not to do. We simply respond, yes, Lord, and move out in obedience. No doubt in a, in a show of piety, maybe Peter feeling like he's being tested and he's going to stand up and say, I, I have never put anything unclean in my mouth and I will never put anything in my mouth. Guys, God's not impressed with our professed piety. Isaiah records for us an exchange that Isaiah, the Lord speaking through him to the king Ahaz, says, Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he, that being Isaiah, said, Listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of God as well? We can easily get caught up in this idea that in our piety, we will not cross certain lines, even if the Lord clearly is telling us that this is where he wants us to go. Legalistic pride, lack of faith, putting God in a box, saying God would never ask me to do that or whatever. God clearly <laughs> rebukes Peter. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. What God has cleansed. And in that, no doubt Peter coming face to face with the fact that, again, the blood of Jesus has changed everything. This was never fully about dietary laws, even all the way back when they were given in the Pentateuch. It was always about sanctification. It was always about this idea, again, of being separate, but being, being that witness to the world. But Jesus changed it all. We're all on the same playing field. We're all cleansed the same way by the blood of Jesus. And what, the, what God has cleansed, it's not up to us to say it's unclean. In verse 16, it says, this happened three times and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. That, that in itself makes me chuckle a little bit. It happened three times. The same process went through three times. Peter's thinking, I wonder if he's trying to tell me something. <laughs> Have you ever had that happen? I wonder if God's trying to tell me something. Or maybe it's because you keep hearing, have you ever had that same message that you've heard several times over and every time you hear it, you're like, where is my wife now? I, every, time, every time I hear this message on submission, she's not in the car. <laughs> or where is my husband now? I'm in, this, I'm in the car all the time. I'm driving around, and here's this message on forgiveness again. Where is he? <laughs> Somebody shared with me this week that they, they were at, in a class that was taking place over a few days, and every time driving to and driving back and during their breaks, 
They kept on hearing the message, and their favorite pastor on the radio, David Jeremiah, it was the same one, and she heard the same message several times, and it was on forgiveness. And finally she said, I wonder if God's trying to tell me something. (laughs) The next time you hear that message, guys, that's about submission, and you want your wife to hear it, stop and listen. It's for you. Ladies, forgiveness, whatever. I'm not trying to single out here. Listen, God has a message for all of us. He wants to continue to mold us and shape us. Well, Peter says in verse 17, was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be. Behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius, having asked for direction to Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, no doubt again, in his heart, Lord, what does this all mean? Does it mean I can order a BLT for lunch? Or the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. But get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Light coming on. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a Roman, a Gentile, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. To go to the house of a Gentile, much less a Roman centurion, would have been totally off limits for a pious Jewish person. And no doubt again, the light going off now in in his head. Peter's mulling all this over. We look at the sequence of events, and again, guys, embrace the truth that God is in control of everything. Just at the time that Peter's thinking, I wonder what this is all about. We're here for Peter. God's working on both ends. And he says to him, the Spirit speaking to Peter, go with them without any misgivings. Don't make any distinctions. Again, everything has been changed. Paul tells us that we have a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. No distinction. We're not better than anyone. We're not in a position where people owe us anything. As a matter of fact, Paul... Paul, the one who, towards the end of his ministry, could have said, you owe me, and you owe me, and you owe me, and you owe me. He says this, I am under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. I'm under obligation. I owe you. And I love how he doesn't just say, I'm under obligation to everyone. No, he gives specifics, both to Greeks and to barbarians. I'm obligated to barbarians. That means I'm obligated to you, whether you're rude, pushy, arrogant. Doesn't matter. (laughs) Doesn't matter what you've said about me or done to me. I owe you. Doesn't matter if we see eye to eye. I owe you. 
And where does that kind of thought and heart come from? Again, I go back to the fact that we got to be totally blown away by the grace of God. Everyone in this room was owed nothing but eternal punishment in hell. But instead, by the grace of God, we get eternal life because Jesus took our punishment for us. We need to spend some time, more time, contemplating on that. And then we realize, man, I, I owe everybody. <laughs> well, we're going to leave off there. We'll pick up next week and have the encounter with Peter and Cornelius. But just as kind of a cl closing couple of thoughts on this whole thing, pulling it all together, if you would. Peter, the man who had been with Jesus, the man who had been through all of these different things, the one as we've looked and studied it, the first part of Acts, he was the one who stood up and gave the sermon that thousands responded to. He's been the spokesperson, the main one giving the messages day after day in the temple area. He's been used greatly by God. God chose to heal people through Peter. We just saw today, Tabitha, he chose to use Peter to raise her from the dead. But God wasn't done working in Peter. There were still areas in Peter's life, pride issues, self-righteousness issues, that God still needed to work on. And if that still needed to be done in Peter, guys, it still needs to be done in us. There's areas in our lives that, that we have to make available to God to work on and to change in us. Different, different areas of perhaps prejudice that we might have towards people or towards, towards our neighbors or coworkers especially. That's a, that, I remember that was such a difficult time for me. Coworkers doing certain things and acting certain ways. We can't, we can't develop any of those, those types of things. And those areas that we, we have to allow God to work in and, and through us. And areas that he might ask us to go that we're saying, I, man, I'm not comfortable in that. But we need to be obedient. It's interesting, the, as I started it this week and just read through the, the text a couple of times, the first question or comparison that came to me, again, with the centurion, remember the story in Matthew chapter 8, when the centurion came to Jesus... I started thinking about parallels with that and just thinking through that. And a question popped into my head. What stopped Jesus from going to the centurion's house? Remember, there was a centurion that came to Jesus and his servant was dying. What stopped Jesus from going to his house? Was it because he was a Gentile? No. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, I'll go. I'll come. What stopped him? The faith of the centurion. The humility of the centurion, the, the embrace of Jesus as Lord of the centurion, a Gentile. He said, you don't have to come, you just say the word and I know he'll be healed. And then he said, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. I understand authority, Jesus. I understand that the people do what is under me when I command them because I'm under the authority of Rome. I understand your authority. You just say the word. What was stopping Peter from going to the centurion's house? A lack of faith? A lack of humility? 
a lack of complete embracing of Jesus as you say, I'll go wherever you tell me to go, do whatever you tell me to do? Hmm. Just one of those things to make you go, hmm. Lord, what do you want to do in me? How do you want to change me and use me in even greater ways? God's not done with us, guys. He's not done working on us and working through us if we allow him to. Would you please stand? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this, this story that we have in front of us today. And like always, Lord, just amazed that something that took place a couple thousand years ago in a culture on the other side of the world, Lord, is so applicable and practical for us today. Lord, we're challenged as we see how you were working in the early church and how they responded to you working in them. How they grabbed a hold of what it is that you were giving to them. How they embraced and enjoyed peace. Peace with you. The peace that only you provide. Lord, how they were being built up, but Lord, also building one another up, moving forward. Lord, we thank you that it's your desire to continue to do that work in your church today that we are a part of. Lord, we thank you for the redeeming and cleansing work that you have done in each of us. And Lord, our desire is that we move forward in the sanctification process. If you're here today and you have never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you understand, as that centurion did that we talked of today, that the world really does not have anything to offer. You've chased after things. You've gone after what the world says will satisfy, but you know it's empty. And you want to know that your sins are forgiven. You want to experience this peace. You want to know what it means to have eternal life. There's only one way, and that is to come through Jesus today and accept the free gift of salvation that he offers because he died to give that to you. And if that's you, you simply go before him in your heart and you say, God, I know I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Jesus, I believe you're that savior. I believe that you died for me. So right now I invite you to come into my life. Would you cleanse me of all of my sin? Would you wash me? Would you give me that peace, the peace that passes understanding? Give me that eternal Lord, we thank you that it is simply a matter of faith. And Lord, as we continue to walk this road that you placed before us, we ask that you strengthen our faith. As we worship you now, Lord, would you continue to do that work in our hearts? So oh. 